This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and across from me this evening is Mr. Matt Caraccio. Matt, Happy holidays. There's football on. There's basketball on in the background right now. Florida, Oklahoma, NBA action going on. A lot in the world of sports. And we're here to break down the NFL, college football. I know we're doing a deep dive on Zach Wilson. How are you doing this evening, my friend? Oh, man, it seems... It seems like the jingle bells have given way to the roars of the crowds that we once used to hear in the stadiums. And I'm looking for that roar only to realize that no, it's not quite like that. But that doesn't mean that the, the, the magic that is sport is any less important and any less exciting than it used to be. In fact, I would argue it's probably even more so given the fact that we are all clamoring to kind of not only get back to normalcy in a lot of areas of our life, but especially in the world of sports, being able to enjoy these college football games, these kind of upcoming NBA basketball games and the the hockey season on the horizon. I mean, there is just so much to get excited about. Um, To everybody out there, I hope you guys had a fantastic holiday. Happy New Year as well, because by the time you probably listen to this, it may or well, you know, may very well be 2021. So, um, I'm excited to to kind of get into it tonight. So uh, on behalf of my family, and I'm sure Paul's happy new year to all of you guys. And and Paul, I can't wait to get started tonight. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't echo that statement that you said that I honestly do believe that during this dark time in our country, that sports has really been something that has given people an opportunity to communicate with their friends, strangers via social media, you know, just communicating, talking, group texting. I, I know, you know, that's been one of the things that has been a little bit of a godsend during these times where we, you know, we can't really spend a lot of time around people. You know, sports is at least something that has brought people together via, you know, social media and, you know, and the, and cell phones and talking. And, you know, I know, you know, we talk so much off the air, you know, we live and breathe football here, but I know me and you have been having a lot of conversations about the Knicks and the NBA. Uh, and, and I, I do think that sports has been a great, great distraction, you know, over this really tough time here for our country, uh, you know, kind of a, a breakaway from, uh, you know, all the issues that are going on. So it has been a nice welcome distraction for sure. So let's get right into it because I don't got really a lot to talk about in terms of individual players. We decided last week that we were going to mostly spend the NFL draft report this week talking about Zach Wilson, the BYU quarterback. We know the statistics are gaudy. And when Jeff Abercrombie was on, I don't know, probably two months ago now, we had talked a little bit about Zach Wilson. I did a, you know, a deep dive on him back then. And I kind of watched the first four or five games of the season of Zach Wilson. And I came away with some thoughts. I thought he was a fringe first round prospect. Then I saw some things that I liked about him, but then I saw some things that really I had questions about. And then as the year has gone on, Man, the growing sentiment for Zach Wilson 
you know, from all parties, from Dame Brewler saying he thinks he could go number two, from, you know, Daniel Jeremiah saying there are glimpses of his game that remind him of Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers. And, you know, now it sounds like he's QB two. And, you know, and I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, did I miss something, right? You know, is there something that, you know, they're seeing on the film that they've gotten? Did I miss it in the games that I watch? So we said last week we were going to, we're going to do some study and come back and report. And I teased that a little bit yesterday on Twitter. I watched four more games. I've now watched nine of Zach Wilson's games, basically every single throw, every single play from those nine games that are available, you know, via YouTube. And my opinion did change a little bit. And I know for you, it was like a completely blanket canvas. So I kind of, before I talk about my changes a little bit, I kind of want to get before I say anything, your initial thoughts, your first impression, because you really, for the first time, put him under the microscope. And I'm really intrigued to see, to hear what you thought of Zach Wilson. When I believe, if I remember correctly, I saw you said on Twitter that you got a chance to watch four games of him, you know, in terms of what your initial thoughts on Zach Wilson were. So, I mean, I focused on the 2020 game film that I could get my hands on. And that was kind of where I led myself to. So I, I had a chance to watch, you know, um, a compilation of plays from the Coastal Carolina game, the UCF game, the Boise State game, and the San Diego State game. So those and, were and Matt. Let me just yeah. jump in. Those yeah. are the la- those are the new four that I watched. So that's oh, okay. really interesting. Okay. So so you watched the the recent four. Those were the those were the exact four that I watched earlier in the year. I watched basically five of his games. I think they were his first five games this year. So you so we are in lockstep of the four most recent games we watched of him. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, when it comes down to, you know, evaluations, I mean, we always want the most current film and the most current film available. I think what's great is to be able to see production over time, but ultimately being able to get the first, you know, the most recent footage is, is probably the most important for me. So, you know, I took this from a very much a, a kind of problem solver lens. So that means I tried to take this from a more holistic standpoint. I tried to look at the types of problems he was presented with on the field and the manner in which he went about solving them. And I think the key thing to understand is, is that I kept trying to reconcile the problems that I saw in these various situations with the types of situations he would face in the NFL. And I came away with some feelings about him in terms of his ability to solve problems, again, correctly, quickly, rationally, and resourcefully. And for those of you who are not familiar with those four words, you know, again, correctly just refers to, you know, correctly and quickly refers to the way in which he solved the problem. Did he solve it correctly? That's pretty much self-explanatory. Quickly, was he able to kind of diagnose, assess, and make decisions and move through his solution, so to speak, instantaneously on the field? Was there any types of hiccups? You know, what is it that he did in terms of, you know, quickly solving the problem? Rationally really has to do more with um, his economy of movement as well as his expediency. In other words, did he do solutions that made sense for his body? Did he really show that type of versatility in his body where he used everything he was physically gifted with to kind of meet the tasks, to meet the unique kind of Uh, situational needs. And then resourcefully is really what I think is one of the most important elements of a problem solver. And that shows their ability to adjust on the fly to the situations as they evolve over time from one play to another. How are, how is the mover? How is the athlete able to solve those problems? Did they show resourcefulness, the ability to kind of proactively kind of 
understand what was about to occur and make a decision that allowed or put his team or put himself in the best position to make a play. So that's just kind of a quick synopsis. So just to kind of break it down from there, I mean, listen, he solved a lot of the problems correctly. I think he had a really good feel for the distribution of coverages. I thought he had a nice understanding of the leverage of defenders versus his own wide receivers. He really rarely was in a situation where I would say, wow, that was just a bad throw. I really didn't see a lot of terrible throws on his film. I thought there was a lot of there was a lot of opportunity where the problems that were presented to him, which were mainly, you know, I saw a lot of cover two, I saw some cover four, I saw some man coverage. I think he really did a nice job kind of finding and understanding how the coverage distributions would settle in. And I thought he did a nice job solving those problems. So from a correctness standpoint, I thought he really did meet the problems and solve them adequately. Now, his quickness of solution, how quickly was he resolving the situation? How quickly was he diagnosing the different opportunities available to him and actually making those decisions quickly? How quick was he in doing that? I had a lot of question marks here. I left feeling like a lot of the time he had a tremendous amount of time in the pocket. There was a lot of time in the pocket for him to throw. That offensive line was giving him, and I counted the Mississippis just to like see if I was maybe losing my mind. And I got to like three, four, five Mississippis sometimes when I was watching him throw the football. And while he was able to find a solution, I'm just not entirely sure that the time frame that he was offered is representative of an NFL type of time frame. The timeline from snap to throw, I don't always think was representative of an NFL timeline. I think he was getting a lot of time to throw the football. And again, that's not to diminish what he did. It's just to point out that I don't think um, that the timeline in the pocket was representative or transferable to the next level. So that in and of itself to me compromises, you know, everything else, right? We always talk on this show about problem solving. If you have more time in the pocket, it's going to give you an opportunity to find solutions that may or may not be available at one moment in time or at one moment in timeline of the sequence of a throw, and it may emerge later in the throw. So that was just something that I saw from him. I do think that he had a nice quick compact release, which also afforded him extra time because he was able to get rid of the ball very quickly. And I think that will transfer well to the next level. But I do think that, again, that protracted timeline gave him an opportunity to diagnose the coverage in a way that allowed him to make throws. I'm not sure that's going to transfer to the next level so quickly. I'm a little bit concerned there. From a rationality standpoint, I thought he really did a nice job. He threw from different arm angles. I thought he absolutely showed expediency in terms of using his body, throwing off platforms, showing that balance, that ability to kind of find the receiver, you know, find the receiver from different arm slots and arm angles. I thought he did a nice job rolling left and rolling right. I think he was really economical in the way in which he threw the football. I didn't see a lot of wasted movement, but I will say this. There was some rationality concerns in terms of throwing receivers open. I didn't really see him throw receivers open that often. He threw the receivers a lot of the times on slants, And this goes into the resourcefulness. A lot of these dimensions kind of intermingle because there is no way to kind of really, I would say, uh, reduce a player down to four or five traits. Everything is kind of intermingling with one another. So when it comes to rationality and resourcefulness, I had some concerns, like I said, with throwing receivers open. I think a lot of the types of um, passing concepts that he was being thrown into really had a lot of curl routes and slants and a lot of outbreaking routes where really 
don't get me wrong, he showed a kind of proactive anticipatory nature to his throws where he was already throwing the receiver open on those routes at um at one point in his drop but but there were other routes like deep routes deep routes down the sideline um deep routes over the middle um uh i would say in breaking routes over the middle into intermediate and deep ranges of the field i didn't really see him throw receivers open frequently i saw him really do a nice job putting the ball on a receiver coming out of a curl route or an outbreaking route towards the sideline and i saw him do it well in respect to the coverage that they were facing and he did a nice job of getting the football in terms of ball placement and accuracy to his receivers but i didn't see a lot of great plays after the catch from his receivers and that doesn't mean that it was his fault it just means that I saw a lot of the times where the receivers were kind of holding up just to catch the football before they were able to move into the next phase of them attacking downfield. So it, it to, to kind of succinctly put it, Paul, I saw some concerns in terms of his kind of anticipatory control of what he wanted to do with the football when coupling it to the routes and the receivers that he was dealing with. His arm talent was very nice. He was able to adjust trajectories and speed of his ball very nicely, but I felt like when it came to finding the windows that would also facilitate his receivers to make a play after the catch, I did not always see that in the intermediate and deep areas of the field. I felt like the receivers were adjusting to his throws more often than him finding them in strides. And not to talk about another quarterback, but if you watch a Trevor Lawrence compared to him, Trevor Lawrence does a nice job of of opening or throwing his receivers open, as we would say, which means I find him putting the ball in a position where the receiver can immediately make a make a play after the catch. And that doesn't mean that Zach Wilson's receivers did not make plays. It just means that you could see that they had to first solve the problem of catching his football before they were able to concentrate on the next area, which was making a play after the catch. There was a little bit lack of uh, synergy in terms of the way in which the passes were being received versus their opportunities to make plays after the catch. So when it came to his rationality, I thought he was economical in his throws, but when it came to his resourcefulness, I think he was good on curl routes, outbreaking routes and slant routes, but I think he struggled in the intermediate and deep areas of the field coupling his trajectory of his football to the receiver's route and to the leverage of the defense. I don't think he was comfortable in those areas of the field. So that's not to diminish his arm strength. It's not to tell you that he can't do it. It's to tell you that he's not adept at solving those problems yet, in my opinion. So I think right now, if I had to slide him somewhere, I'd probably say he's clearly a first-round talent for me. I think that what he can already do when he has a good feel of the coverage, his ability to throw from multiple arm angles, his ability to kind of move and solve problems from a variety of different slots gives him the ability. I think the idea that he can run and make plays after the catch, people will talk about his running ability. It's nothing special in my opinion. I think it's it's good. I think he makes better decisions running the football than it is a feat of athleticism. I do not see... Um, I think I think Trevor Lawrence and I think Justin Fields are way more athletic running with the football than he is. 
And that's not to say that he's not an athlete. It's just to say that I think they're the result of better decision making than some, you know, uh, feats of athleticism that I think he's exhibiting. I don't, I don't think he's a runner in the NFL. I think he's a little bit more of a pocket passer. I do understand the comparisons to him and, and Patrick Mahomes. I see that idea. There were many throws where he's throwing across his body, rolling left, rolling right. And I think they're great. I think there's a lot to be loved there. But I do think that the level of problems he was facing in the collegiate level, I think there were times where I felt that the affordances of time in the pocket coupled with the types of routes that he had to throw to, which were really more in that intermediate and short areas of the field based on the system that he was running. I do think that those problems in some ways are what make him exceptional was his ability to solve those. But also I think that there's room for him to grow at the NFL level. So again, I'm talking very holistically, Paul, and I know there's a lot of language there that, that may or may not make sense to some people, not because it's not because you're not understanding what I'm saying, but because I'm still even developing my own understanding of how I'm explaining this. But I am trying to say to you from a holistic standpoint for first round talent, but there's still development, in my opinion, that he needs to go through. I still think there's a level of sensitivity to the NFL game that he'll find surprising in terms of the speed, the windows, everything is going to challenge him. And that's not to say that he won't be successful. It's just to say that I do think that he has more of a leap to make than um, than than I think is being touted. Yeah, well, I mean, let's let's start right there, though. You know, I think we we live in a time right now that if you say anything negative about a player, you know, people sometimes walk away, but that's the only thing they hear. Every single quarterback prospect that we have talked about on this show in the five years we've done Saturday to Sunday, you know, we were the most avid Josh Allen fans. We we understood there was tons and tons of development to his game that needed to take place for him to be a upper echelon NFL quarterback, which he's now becoming into. You know, we said, you know, there were things about, you know, we like Josh Rosen, but there were things we were concerned about. Obviously, those concerns have, you know, have paramounted. And I think there's been some stuff that we can't, you know, really have access to. Same thing with Dwayne Haskins. You know, but we, we you can go through all the quarterbacks. We liked Sam Darnold, but we thought there were some issues with him. So, so, so talking about some of the things that he has to work on and improve and develop – I think that's normal. I think that's almost every single quarterback process. We love Justin Fields here at Saturday Sunday, but he's got stuff he's got to work on, you know, to be a top level, elite level quarterback at the next level. You know, and I do think in some ways, a lot of what you said is spot on in terms of he's going to have to speed up his mental processing at the next level for sure. He's not going to be able to sit in the pocket as long as he did and then roll out when he wants to and have still extra time to make those plays. That's just not going to be there at the NFL level. You and know, Paul, that, not to interrupt you, no. but I have, a, I have a question for you. And very rarely was he under significant pressure from the exposures that I saw. Very rarely was he clamoring and running for his life. And when he was, he was definitely very average in terms of what he was doing. Yeah, we do not have a lot of film of of him handling pressure. 
It's just yeah. he he's he just wasn't asked to a lot. So that's gonna be something. Listen, there are some quarterbacks that get to the NFL that based on the team that they played with in you know in college, we you sort them under duress a lot. Like, you know, again, we're New York Giant fans, so we can it's easy. And we were down on Daniel Jones when he came into the NFL. And this year, maybe our original thoughts was right. You know, like we don't know. It's still to be determined there. But like you watch Daniel Jones on film and he was under duress every single play at Duke. You know what I mean? So you saw him. You had ample film of how he was going to handle pressure, you know, in terms of what he can do. We have no idea in that regards. There is very little film in terms of how well Zach Wilson can handle. And I do think you're right. I think people who think at him, look at him, I think he is a above average athlete for the quarterback position, but I think he is mostly going to be a pocket passing quarterback at the next level. I think he has the athleticism and mobility to move around and make plays when, 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 you know, the pocket breaks down. He can move to his right, move to his left, row on the run. I think he can do all of that. I think he'll pick up some yards here or there. But, like, I don't even think he's at a Joe Burrow or Daniel Jones level of athleticism. So he's definitely not at, you know, the level of a, a Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields. I think he's I think he's less than Joe Burrow, less than Daniel Jones. He's 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 not Mac, he's not Mac Jones. You know, Mac Jones is a statue no, in the he, pocket. But he, he's a smart runner. He's yeah. a smart runner. He knew when to take his he knew the spots to take a shot in, but he was not somebody who was gaining yards on the ground, making people miss looking for the end zone after no. running. Listen, Patrick Mahomes is a very smart runner at the NFL level. That's what Zach Wilson could be. He's got the same type of level of athleticism of maybe a Patrick Mahomes. But that's the Chiefs aren't calling read options on a regular basis. They sprinkle it in when they see something on the defense. And I don't think wherever Zach Wilson goes, don't look at his touchdown numbers in that BYU offense and th- and look at him as a guy who's going to be this big time runner near the goal line. He'll occasionally run a touchdown in. I just he's not going to be running and they're not going to be running read option and run plays with him like the Giants were running when Daniel Jones was healthy this year or other teams run. That's I don't think that's who he is. So I think a lot of your concerns are valid concerns that that are to be determined. Uh, a lot of things you said, I, you know, in terms of the positives, I agree with a lot of them. I think his arm is very live and I think his arm is very loose. And I, the ability to throw from multi-platforms and different arm angles, quick release, snap at a wrist, he has all of that. So that's why when you hear, you know, the glimpses of Mahomes or the glimpses of the Aaron Rodgers, I think it's in regards to the liveliness of his arm, the looseness of it, you know, the, the quick twitch. I get all that. He does have a live arm. But let's not also uh, let's not interpret live arm and the multi platforms and the different arm angles as elite level velocity and strength. He is not Patrick Mahomes. He is not Josh Allen. He is not that level of velocity and strength. What I saw on film the second half of the year compared to the first, I saw way better arm talent. I had legitimate concerns and questions when I watched some of his early games. I thought his arm talent was average in the in the, the early portion of the year. I didn't see a lot of big-time NFL tight window throws and a lot of velocity and, and strength. 
I saw more of that. You mentioned you watched the Coastal Carolina game, which probably was his worst game of the whole season. He had one play, though, that I think, you know, really emphasized his arm strength where he threw like an out route and he even though it might've only been like a 15 or 20 yard pass, he had rolled to the other side. So he probably threw it on a rope, like 40 or, or 50 yards, you know, in a, in a play. And you saw, you see some of these out routes, you see some of the plays. He had a play, I think it was in against UCF against San Diego state where you really see his arm talent. So his arm, his velocity and his strength is better than what I thought it was. I would definitely classify it as the good territory than the average, which I thought earlier in the year, he can make every NFL throw, you still don't see a ton of tight window throws because I just don't think he, I just don't think it was needed in that BYU offense and the level of the opponents. So you didn't see a lot of time where he had to thread the needle. You saw some glimpses of it here or there. You know, obviously, you're he's gonna have some plays where he puts it into a, a tight window, but you didn't see it time in and time out. As Matt said before, you saw a lot of slants, a lot of, you know, a lot of things where curls, hitches, outs, exactly. High, high speed change of direction routes, in breaking routes, deep routes, feathering routes down the middle, he was not spectacular. He just yeah. wasn't. And and you're right, the receivers sometimes did have to stop and make adjustments to the ball and stuff like that. I think his arm talent is good. If you want to classify it as above average to good, and it's fine. He's, he's probably got a more lively arm in terms of velocity and strength than Joe Burrow did. And Joe Burrow just was the first quarterback in the draft last year. So in terms of straight velocity and strength, not talking about anything else except that right there. So he, he's got the arm talent to make NFL throws. But don't if you're watching him and you're thinking, you're thinking his arm talent is on a Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, or Josh Allen level, I didn't see anything like that in terms of those guys' arm talent is in the great to uh, elite to rare arm talent. I don't, he's, to me, he's not even on that spectrum in terms of pure velocity and strength to, you know, to really, uh, throw it in there. I think he does a great job changing trajectories and, and knowing when to take it off and put it on. And I think that's where earlier in the year, I don't think there was a lot of instances where he had to put, you know, a little bit more, you know, miles per hour on his fastball, you know, to get it there. I, I saw some more times in these four games here down the stretch where he did have to. So that's the, that's the, one of the changes for me in terms of his arm talent, in terms of velocity and strength, I do think is better than I gave him credit for earlier in the year. So that's probably was one of the biggest differences for me from earlier in the year to, to now. So so that's one thing that I did see, but I do think don't overrate his athleticism and don't overrate his arm talent. The they're good. They're they're the athleticism is probably above average. He's not going to be a big time runner at the next level, but he can move around the pocket, throw on the run, make things happen, and be a smart, intelligent runner. And his arm talent is good. He can make every NFL throw in terms of he has the arm to do it. He doesn't not have the arm to do it. Like you see, you watch a game of Gardner Minshew. He doesn't have the physical capabilities to make throws at the NFL level that you need to make to be a high level quarterback in the NFL. Zach Wilson can make every NFL throw. But don't confuse being able to make every NFL throw and have a quick release and throw from multiple arm angles to mean he's got elite level velocity and strength because he doesn't have that. He has good velocity and strength, a little bit better than Joe Barrow, I think. But well, that's where I'm in, in terms of the, the, the arm talent aspect. 
No, and I would I would just say I think that when we get into these discussions, I think very often in these shows we we end up using you know a lot of a lot of um you know we end up using a lot of metaphors to describe players. But in reality, when we say words like arm talent, which is a a very industry laden word, I mean, what is arm talent, right? It's the ability of the player to couple the throw correctly to the receiver given the circumstances of the coverage on the field. And let's be very real here. He's got good arm talent because the actual offense itself had him doing a lot of similar things over and over and over again. He was throwing a lot of slants, a lot of high-speed change of direction routes, out routes, things that were really conducive with taking advantage of his quick release and also maximizing the amount of pass protection that was created for him by that O-line. So I think it's a brilliant piece of coaching. I don't think he's a system player. I don't believe in that. I still think you have to execute. But I do think that what Paul's saying in terms of the arm talent, arm strength discussion, I think what we're saying is if you accelerate the clock and ask his play speed to increase and you ask him to be able to make throws that are off platform from altering trajectories, matching receivers, running at different tempos and routes, can he do it? I have not seen evidence that he has been successful in the intermediate and deep areas of the field. I just haven't seen that. In the short to intermediate areas along the sidelines, I feel comfortable with him throwing the football in the NFL level. But I do think that the play speed element, which is going to absolutely impact a player's perception of arm talent, is something that I don't necessarily have absolute resounding credibility and clarity on. And that's not to say I have it for Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence either. What I am saying is, is that that's where I am with Zach Wilson right now in those two elements. The arm talent is there. He can throw a nice ball to a running back coming out of the backfield, which is a super hard throw for quarterbacks. If you ask them throwing to the running back out of the backfield is incredibly hard. He throws a very quote unquote metaphor ready. Here's another metaphor, catchable football. He throws a very catchable football, but like we said, there are times where I see his receivers, he he'll throw them into coverage too. He will throw them into coverage. I've seen a couple of his guys get licked real yes, bad. I, I forget what game it was like maybe the San Diego state game where he, he got a couple of his receivers really leveled in the middle of the field where he hesitated on the slant route. And where did that, and but and where did those happen usually? Sometimes they were in the short, very rarely were they in the short areas, but they were in that intermediate sometimes to deeper areas. Those are the times where I saw him, there was a little bit of a breakdown in terms of his perception of the defense relative to his receiver and the route being called. It broke down for him. His problem-solving capacities broke down a little bit in those situations. So that, that was just something I had to bring up. Yeah. And listen, and here's the thing, guys, we're, 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 we're going through with a fine tooth comb here, looking for things to, to discuss. Like, don't get me wrong. You watch the UCF highlights or you watch the, the game, you watch the San Diego state game. He does have some wow plays. They're sprinkled in there. So let's not, you know, let's not, let's not, you know, don't listen to this and come away thinking like, I don't understand it. Like I watch, you know, as a casual fan might who, who's listening to us might say, I watched that game and, you know, he had one play where, you know, he kind of wrote, uh, you know, 
uh, rolled to his right and, and threw a, a bullet to the end zone that was 30 or 40 yards down the field for a touchdown. Yeah, he's got some of those plays sprinkled in for sure. And those are the plays that excite people. Those are the plays that you see over and over on YouTube, you know, and people, you know, have them popping up on their, their Twitter feed left and right. And they're seeing those play on every highlight reel. And, you know, that's why, again, you got to be careful with highlight reels and then watching full games because you can get it because he does have some really spectacular plays. So he's got some of those plays that are that I can see someone saying, yeah, you know, the flick of the wrist. That's where he reminds people of Patrick Mahomes or or Aaron Rodgers. And, you know, he does that little sidearm throw that you've seen Mahomes and Rodgers use. Like yeah, so it was across his body to the middle of the field it, with it, pinpoint it, accuracy. He did it. it. He's it, done it. Exactly. And he's, and listen, some of the things that he's great at, his accuracy is, it was really spot on. His accuracy was really spot on. You know, but the thing that we're talking about here is Matt and I are trying to, to, to lay out some points of he is coming from a lower level of competition. He has, he's got to be able to make sure. I think for him, the main thing he's going to have to do is speed up that internal clock because yeah, he gets away with things at BYU that he is not going to get away with at the NFL level that, you know, things that maybe are an incomplete pass or, you know, not a, not a major negative play could turn into a major negative play at times. He's got to try not to be a play hero ball and, and no, you know, just to, to settle for a sack or throw away the ball. Like there are things, little things like that, that I think he can get away with his athleticism and mobility, maybe in terms of college, maybe is good to very good in the NFL when the defenders are faster, quicker, you know, bigger, stronger, not as much. He's not going to be running as much away from these physical defensive freak defensive ends, or these really quick three techs in the pocket or outside linebackers coming off the edge or safety blitzes, you know, everything speeds up. And I think that's going to be his biggest challenge, but there is a lot to like about him. There's a lot to like about him. And, you know, he, he's, and now listen, part of the thing about the arm talent, you know, let's not remember he had a, he had a, I think it was a torn labrum issue, you know, that he was coming back from. So earlier in the year, when I had some, some reservations about his arm talent, he might've still been fully, you know, like maybe he wasn't letting, letting it rip as much yet. And now like, as the year has gone on, it feels a little better, you know, and then he decides to, you know, fully let it rip or could it just been the game plan and, and, and the calls in earlier in the year and, and things change a little bit. So there's a variety of reasons that it could have been, which, which is why we always say here, it's not a stagnant process. We watch guys in the summer. We watch guys during the year. We watch guys after the year because things change and, and guys develop, you know, Joe Burrow wasn't the first pick in the NFL draft when last year's college football season started either. Right. So, so things evolve and develop. I walked away. And my player comp wasn't at the Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers level. Uh, I want to I want to hear who you say because I got somebody. I got somebody. my my player comp in terms of the accuracy, the level of athleticism and mobility, the quick twitch in terms of the arm, the multi arm angles and platforms. I watched him. I watched him really torment the Giants for years. He he reminds me a lot of Tony Romo in terms of his size, his frame. His accuracy being pinpoint, uh, having above average athleticism, but not much. Tony Romo wasn't much of a runner, but he was very good moving around the pocket. You could use him on rollouts and you can move the launch point and stuff like that. I think that's what Zach Wilson could do. I think the accuracy is comparable. You know, so I, I think there's a lot of similarities between Tony Romo and Zach Wilson. And that's a very lofty compliment because even as a Giants fan, 
I appreciated just how good Tony Romo is. And people always harped on him choking in the playoffs and, you know, and, and stuff like that. Tony Romo was a very, very good quarterback. And now he's one of the best broadcasters and, and, and analysts in the boot maybe we have. But on the football field, he was very, very good. Uh, I think Zach Wilson, that's who he reminds me of. And to me, that's a pretty lofty comparison. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually really like your comp. I really like your comp a lot, and I, I just on that alone, I think I'm going to stick with yours as well. I, I, I really do agree with that. I do see a lot of elements of his game in Romo's game, and I think that that's a very good kind of uh, approximation for where his kind of uh, you know problem solving capabilities can evolve to. And I think that that's like you said. I think that people you know look back on Tony Romo. And it sounds like a meh comment. It's not the the lofty praise afforded to a player like he's the next Patrick Mahomes or Dan Marino or the listen, Tony Romo was good for a long time in this league. Very good for a long and time. And he came from league. a low level program too. Like, yeah. you know, undrafted yeah. free agent, like had a yeah. his opportunity. Mean, yeah, no, 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 no. And 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 for that I I I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, he He's a player that, again, I think to Paul's point, just to, to kind of wrap this up on my end, you want to know what type of problem solver he is? I think he's an exceptionally good problem solver in the short to intermediate areas along the sidelines against various coverages. I think he shows the ability to handle those types of situations very well. He has great ball placement and accuracy in those situations. But I do think that there's something to be said about the timeline in which he operated at BYU. His timeline, I think, was a far cry from an NFL timeline in terms of the opportunities in the pocket that he had to throw the football. And when it came to throwing into those, like I said, those deep and intermediate areas of the field, I don't think he was necessarily throwing his receivers open. I think there was a little bit of a of a of a you know a problem solving breakdown that occurred in those areas, and that means to me that he's still a first round talent, a, still a, a team that I you know is still a player that I would move you know kind of you know not heaven and earth so to speak. But if I needed a quarterback, I'd go up and do a lot worse than getting Zach Wilson, and I would pay a top ten pick for him. I really would. I probably would go and get him in the top ten if I had to. And I don't think that there's, you know, I don't think that there is any reason not to to kind of go and pay that price. I think there's an opportunity to get him if you need a quarterback. Uh, so I mean, I I don't want it to sound like we're saying he's like a, you know, a, like a third rounder. This is not a third round talent. No, he's not. He he's not Mac Jones. I think Mac Jones is a, a second, third round talent. I think Zach Wilson's a top ten talent, and I think there's four of them. I think four quarterbacks should go in the top ten. I don't know if one falls out, but I think this. I think there's four quarterbacks that are talented and worthy enough to be in top ten quarterbacks that I think you can that you can envision them as modern day NFL quarterbacks. And now the other three really have a lot of running capabilities. I don't think Wilson is anywhere close to the running capabilities of Wilson. Uh, uh, I mean, Wilson is in terms of fields, Lawrence and Trey Lance, but he's not a statue in the pocket. And if you're not going to be a running quarterback who could throw in the NFL nowadays, you at least got to be someone who can navigate the pocket, play off structure, move the launch point, make plays, you know, and handle pressure. And again, handling pressure is a complete unknown. And I think that's something that, you know, we don't have a good read on that for I'm Zach Wilson because he just didn't, he didn't have enough, you know, you yeah. don't want to make, you don't want to make inferences off a few plays, maybe 
from four game watching. Like, you know, we don't know. Like in the NFL, you're gonna hand you're gonna have to handle pressure every game, almost every single game of every single season. You're gonna have to navigate pressure and handle pressure. This is from what I saw in the nine games I watched, there's just not enough instances for me to say he can or he can't handle pressure. Uh it's an unknown for me. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And in, in fact, the, the few exposures that I did see where it was pr- pressure, I wasn't really seeing him, you know, I wasn't really seeing him get an opportunity to climb the pocket, manipulate the pocket and create opportunities in time for him to throw. I never saw him have to create a lot of time. I never saw him really have to create a tremendous amount of time. I mean that. That's why I think the offensive line component and the timeline he was working on is really an important evaluative point because if you don't think it matters then i ask you a question what is it easier to do is it easier for you to do something difficult if you had a lot of time to do it or if you had a little time to do it i think that's a very simple question and i think we'd all say well if i had a lot of time i can do something more complicated than if i didn't have a lot of time well in the nfl he's going to be doing something complicated in under three seconds most of the time and I yeah. think he had well more than three seconds most of the time at BYU. Yeah, for sure. So, guys, it just it speaks volumes on just how intriguing of a prospect Zach Wilson is. Matt and I here at Saturday, Sunday, I think been doing this five years now. We have never, never in five years did a 30-minute segment on one player in a podcast. We just did a 30-minute segment on Zach Wilson. It speaks volumes on the intrigue of this prospect and how much that we thought this was a needed conversation because, you know, you, he's, he has had a mediocre rise this year that honestly, you can make the case that it might even be a greater mediocre rise than Joe Burrow. Because I thought Joe Burrow was a borderline third, fourth round prospect before last year started who worked his way to the first round. I don't I didn't even do Zach Wilson in the summer because he wasn't on most people's radars as a even a third fourth round quarterback I think when the year started. I think he was a intriguing day three late round quarterback prospect. We'll see how this year goes. From most things that I looked at to try to get a feel for who the guys were that I needed to have eyes on in the summer when I did this the initial quarterbacks for the scouting notebook and now here we are talking about maybe number two overall top five probably top tens a lock so you know it does speak volumes the only other two guys i wanted to talk about in the nfl draft report and i don't know if matt got a chance to to get to look at these guys yet but i did watch them both today so i I did want to share some quick thoughts not obviously the level of detail that we just went into on zach wilson but i finally got a chance to watch the unc running backs and I, I, I talked about him recently. Obviously, I watched UNC games this year. Sam Howell, very impressive. But I, did, I didn't put them under a deep dive at the running backs until today. And, you know, again, friend of the show, Dame Brugler, he put out a tweet a couple of weeks ago saying that, you know, both of these guys could be day two type running backs. And, and day two is, is a lofty praise for running backs. I don't know if they're going to go on day two. I, maybe one sneaks in, but they're definitely in the top four round mix. And more importantly, in this draft class, after Najee Harris and Travis Etienne, they're now in the mix. They're now in the mix with the the Kenneth Gainwells, the uh, Truba Hubbards. uh, Pick any other running back that you want. 
these guys could be number three and number four, or, you know, they're in the mix now to be in the top five to top seven running backs. And when I watch these guys, Michael Carter, obviously, you know, you look at him very small, five foot eight, but here's the thing about Michael Carter. He's a senior. Uh, I did just see that he is not going to play in their bowl game. He has accepted his invite to the senior bowl, really excited that he's going to be there. Uh, I think he's a guy that could really impress at the Senior Bowl because he's a guy that is going to look good in receiving drills. He's going to be a guy that in make people miss with his footwork. Some of that's going to stand out. I mean, he's listed at 5'8", 199 pounds. When I watched him play, these were the three names that came to mind for me. And it's a little bit of a hybrid of, of these guys. Guys I thought of, Devin Singletary, I thought the vision that Michael Carter had was very much that like Devin Singletary had when he was a, when he came out. The, Michael Carter is not going to blow away any 40 times. He's not going to blow away the combine in any way, shape, or form. Neither did Devin Singletary. But Devin Singletary's quickness and his vision compared with his footwork, his cutting ability, made him a really impactful runner in college. And some of that is translated to the NFL level. I think Michael Carter shows really good to very good vision, great footwork, good cutting ability. Other guys that I that I thought of when I watched him play, I saw some Darren Sproles in this game. I think he's a very natural receiver. I, I like what he can do in terms of his receiving capabilities. He had 25 catches this year, 21 last year. I think he probably, if he, if their run game wasn't as dominant as it was, I bet he could even be more of a weapon. He doesn't look like he's 199 pounds. He plays bigger than that, just like Darren Sproles did. That shifty. Darren Sproles didn't blow anybody away with his 40 time. The quickness, the, the in and out of, you know, in and out, uh, hard cuts, make people miss in short spaces, Darren Sproles, Michael Carter. And then the last guy, and this is where, Matt, I'm really intrigued if, when you do get a chance to watch him because I know how much you liked him last year. You put Michael Carter in last year's LSU offense, I'm not sure there's that much of a difference between Michael Carter and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire in terms of their size, their frame, how they play, how they how they win their their toughness for a smaller back their their compact frame for their size and frame there's a lot of there's a lot about Michael Carter that reminded me a little bit of Clyde Edwards-Helaire a little bit of Devin Singletary a little bit of Darren Sproles I really came away intrigued with Michael Carter and I think a team in either round three or round four is going to get Michael Carter to add him to a backfield. And I think he can be a, a vital piece to an offense. He's not going to be a workhorse or rushing for 300 yards like he did against Miami, you know, a couple of weeks ago. That's not going to be Michael Carter at the next level, but he could be a very functional back that, that can be very versatile in up-tempo, spread, no huddle, two-minute drill, change of pace, third down. He is one of the versatile running backs in this class after we're talking about the top guys. Any thoughts on Michael Carter that maybe you just saw from watching a UNC game at some point this year, or you want to hold judgment until you really get a chance to look at him? Yeah, no, I, I'd, I'd like to say is is that my my 35,000-foot knee-jerk reaction having watched some UNC games this year was – 
to your point about playing bigger than his size, right? Let's break that down. What does that actually mean? To me, that means that you have a good understanding of how to manipulate space and mitigate the type of contact that you're receiving. When it comes to taking on contact, I think it can happen one of two ways. Either you're able to nullify contact by meeting momentum and force with opponent's force and negating it and pushing forward. Think of like a Marshawn Lynch, right? That's what they would do. They meet that contact with contact and they use their balance and their physicality to kind of win at the point of attack. But then there's also the ability to handle collisions where you just understand how to mitigate collisions by using your vision and your agility to create really indirect angles that really kind of um, distribute, redistribute, or kind of um, kind of uh, remove the type of force or diminish the type of force that you're receiving. It dissipates it, if it were. Just the, the ability to move in ways that dissipate the force and allow you not to take force on collisions. I thought that's where Michael Carter was very good. I thought he was very good in tight spaces, especially on interior runs with avoiding collisions and not really taking the brunt of attacks. But that was my knee-jerk reaction from having watched film. Paul, I'm I'm more interested to kind of throw it back at you because I, I, I've watched a lot of Javante Williams. I like Javante Williams. I, I think there's, for me, he's, he's right up there. I mean, right now, if I had a, if I had a kind of put him in my kind of pantheon right now of running backs this year, he's sitting there right at that, like kind of two, three turn. He's that's where I'm, I'm seeing him. I don't see a reason why he can't be that high. I mean, did you come away as, as pumped as that? Or were you kind of like, nah, he's all right. No, I, I think he's right there. I think he's on that third, fourth round border as well. And, you know, he's a much more, he's a, he's a much more bigger back. He's 220 pounds. His tackle breaking, finishing ability, his strength, his physicality, his leg drive, his forward lean. Like, I mean, it's probably one of the best in this class in terms of picking up yards, running through contact, whether you, whether, the people outside of Saturday to Sunday want to call it contact balance. Here we often call it contact fidelity. Probably one of the best in the entire class is, is Javante Williams. But he also, for a bigger guy, he's got some quick feet. He, he's not going to be a guy who's making sharp cuts. I don't think he's a guy. He can get to the outside and be effective. Like if you do, you know, outside gap runs, he can be, he can get there. He's not going to be a guy you want going too much east-west. He's not a guy who's got a, you know, you don't want him. He doesn't have the lateral quickness to, you know, be doing certain plays on the outside. I don't think that's where he lives. He can get out there, but I think he's more of a gap runner between the tackles with a little bit of outside gap sprinkled in. I love his toughness and physicality, like I mentioned. I think he is a build-up runner, so I don't think... He's great in, I don't think he's explosive as soon as he gets the ball or in short spaces, but if he gets to the second level, I think he can run by linebackers. And when you combine his buildup speed and acceleration to his physicality and toughness, his stiff arm is, is lethal. I, I came away liking a lot about his game. He, I thought I saw a lot of Chris Carson in his game. And Chris Carson is one of the, 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 
one of the better running backs in the league in terms of breaking tackles, physicality, toughness, a better receiver than people give him credit for. I think that's Javante Williams. You know, Chris Carson isn't the guy who's going to make sharp cuts on, you know, on a dime or have the wiggle to make people miss on a regular basis, but he, but he, he breaks tackles and he makes plays happen because he's got enough footwork and enough quickness with his power, physicality, and strength combined. I think that's Javante Williams. I was intrigued by Javante Williams. They're a perfect duo, these two. You know, like if an NFL team wants to completely revamp their backfield, try to get these guys in like the third and the fifth or the third and the fourth. And like they really do complement each other tremendously in terms of what they can do, their versatility for a smaller back, a bigger back. You know, I think these guys like this isn't a knock on him, but I, I watched Kylan Hill many times and never really came away that impressed. I like these UNC guys leaps and bounds better than Kylan Hill. And I think Javante Williams right now, I I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, hold uh, high school recruiting numbers and, and stuff like that. Javante Williams has been more impressive to me than Zamir White. I mean, Zamir White is still a very intriguing prospect. I think I'm more, after doing a deep dive, I think I'm more intrigued with Javante Williams. I think he's got more versatility to his game. Yeah, well, no, I mean, he's sitting there right now at number three for me. So I'd go Najee Harris, I'd go Travis Etienne, and I'd go Javante Williams. So yeah, I'm very, I don't, I'm, I don't think you're crazy. No, I'm very, I'm very high on Javante Williams. In fact, I would argue that Javante Williams reminds me just as much of, you know, Chris Carson. I think that was a great, great comp. But you know what? I don't think there's that much of a difference between now. When I say there's that, not, not that. Much I have of a, a feeling I know where you're going with this. Keep going. Okay, I don't know if there's that much of a difference between him and Najee Harris in terms okay. of the style of runner. Now. Here's I, thought why. Were, I thought you were going to say there was some Nick Chubb to his game. I thought that's where you were going with it. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. That, but I would argue that Najee Harris, they all live in that that kind yeah. of world. Um, I, I The reason why I'm saying is Najee Harris is because there's subtlety to his cuts. He does not have tremendous lateral cuts where he kind of digs in power length style and cuts three gaps over. Neither does Najee Harris. These guys don't do that. What they do do is – they have a combination of the ability to make subtle speed cuts. They have a lot of control within their speed cuts and they can adjust on interior and outside runs. And then they also have that ability to handle those physical collision based situations in a number of ways from mitigating contact to meeting contact head on. So yeah, I, I, I like Javante Williams a lot. I think him and Najee Harris are very similar styles of runner. I think Najee Harris to a greater degree because of the versatility and variability that he's able to handle that kind of skill level that he's able to handle, um, Najee Harris. But I think Javante Williams reminds me a lot of Najee Harris, the way they play the game. And I know they're physically not the same stature or anything like that but let's can we stop that whole like if they don't physically look the same we can't compare them that that makes no sense to me just because they're physically not the same uh player doesn't mean that their perceptual cognitive abilities to see the field in the same way don't exist that they can't use their bodies in similar ways so let's just i know they don't look the same but the way they play the game very similar I like Javante Williams a lot, and I have one of the first picks in a in a league where my team is just horrible. And I'm not kidding you. I have the first pick. I'm looking at Javante Williams, and I already have a backfield with Najee Harris. 
I'm going to add maybe Javante Williams and just go double down. That's how much I like this kid. I really like this kid a lot. I think he's a great runner. And I think your point, Paul, about having him and Michael Carter (laughs) revamp your entire backfield. Why not? Why not? If you're struggling to find a backfield, I I don't want to say this because I love Miles Gaskin, but I mean, if you're struggling like Miami and you want a backfield, go get a backfield. If you think Miles Gaskin and Salvin Ahmed are not the answers or you're really concerned, I really think if they took Javante Williams, I think Miles Gaskin and and Javante Williams would be a nice combo. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many teams. I mean, think about it. The Jets have so many needs. If they want to wait to day three and try to get a running back, I don't think it's out of realm of possibility that Williams could be there in round four. I think he might go on round three. I think he probably warrants to go on round three. But to be honest with you, these two guys have added a little bit of juice to me for this running back class. A little bit. I still think overall it's very top heavy with, you know, Ethan and Najee Harris. But these guys are guys that I think are going to be valuable pieces at the next level. And I think both of these guys are probably gone by the end of round four. Maybe one slips in the round five, maybe, but I think they're both gone by the end of round four. And I wouldn't even be surprised if any of them hit, uh, hit the board on the top 100 picks and are called on that Friday night of day two of the NFL draft. Because if we saw guys like James Conner go in the third round a couple years back, we saw Zach Moss go in the third round. I'm not going to sit here and say that Javante Williams and Michael Carter are not equally or more talented than either of those guys. I like Javante Williams more than I liked Zach Moss last year. You know, so, so I think that definitely opens up the door for maybe him to be a third round pick if a team looks at it. And if not third round, I think he's definitely off the board in the fourth round. So there it is, guys. Really in-depth three players we don't usually do almost an entire show on on just three players but we thought you know this was an opportunity to talk really in-depth on Zach Wilson and then these UNC running backs who I don't you know you know mistake on my part you know who you know I've been doing shows all, all every single week and I just didn't give them the attention probably that I should have earlier on I know at times my guests this year have came on and have talked up Javante Williams. And it just took me a little bit of time to get around to really do a full deep dive on him. And sometimes when I would watch him just on Saturdays, I walked away thinking, yeah, he was pretty good, but maybe nothing stood out. You know, maybe it was the offensive line. And I don't think I was giving him the credit he deserved. And not until I really dug in deep and just honed in and focused on him and watched a few game after game after game and then some highlights and put it all together that I really appreciate uh, just how talented of a prospect he is. Uh, so Williams is a guy who is definitely climbing up the board. Uh, let's end Let's end the night real quick with a quick NFL rookie report. Uh, obviously, not much to talk about in the tail of the tape. We talked about the playoffs last time we'll kind of catch up on all the bowl games of relevance uh, next week after we know uh, who's in the national championship and stuff like that Uh, real quick in terms of NFL stuff Jalen Hurts this week again put up gaudy stats but the team struggled the Eagles lost he threw for 342 yards 21 of 39 69 yards rushing listen I don't think Hertz is going to be this super accurate quarterback, but it, but the fact that he's showing the ability to pick up chunk yards at the NFL level, I think speaks volumes on maybe his long-term upside. We already know he's still developing his passing ability. We started at Oklahoma last year and the early signs are 
he might be able to succeed at the NFL level. Uh, and that's remarkable because two years ago, I don't think many people thought he could even be a quarterback at the NFL level. And now he's a starting quarterback, potentially pushing Carson Wentz, who a couple of years ago was in the MVP consideration, obviously really struggled this year, but Jalen Hurts might be pushing him out of a job with the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, Tua, I don't know what to say about Tua. He was benched again. Miami's, Miami is, is really, I think they've, I think they've botched this. I think Fitzpatrick was playing too good. The team was playing too good. I don't think it would have been a big deal for them to just let Tua sit for the year, similar to Mahomes sitting behind Alex Smith for that first year, and just let Tua, you know, learn the ropes of the NFL game and then him be the quarterback next year. I mean, he was fine 17 of 22, but only 94 yards. And, you know, it's becoming a little bit, again, it could be that they're, they've had a lot of injuries in their wide receiving corps. Uh, but Tua just seems very gun shy unless it's the play calling. You know, we don't really know. He seems to be a little gun shy to push the ball down the field, put it in the contested situations. Uh, and it's, it's made the Miami offense very stagnant at times when he's been in there. And now multiple times they've had a call on Ryan Fitzpatrick to kind of get the offense moving. I think it, it opens up some level of concern about long-term for Tua. You know, I think he's going to be fine, but maybe not the level of production we saw in college uh, in terms of a high level guy with receivers everywhere, throwing it down, but it's very early still. I don't want to make uh, too quick of a decision, but I do think in terms of the fantasy world, I, I know I said it, I, I think you got to put the other three quarterbacks ahead of him right now in terms of the fantasy realm. And I don't think anybody saw that coming when this year started that oh. Burrow, Herbert and Hertz might all be more valuable commodities in fantasy football. Any quick thoughts, Matt on Hertz oh, and, and, yeah. and two, I know we talked about these guys a little bit last week, so it's basically the same conversation, but another week of data, you know, again, still very small sample sizes for both of these guys. Yeah, just a quick comment on two. I would speak specifically to the the switching in and out of Ryan Fitzpatrick and where that kind of sits with me. Um, listen, I'm a fan of Tua's game. I, I am. I would absolutely look. This is a buying window. If I'm in a dynasty league, I would go and get Tua. I think you can get Tua for, with from an owner that's a little bit down or soured by this kind of um, carousel of quarterback opportunities that's existing in Miami. But I just want to give you a different kind of standpoint, right? Um, you know, it, it, I would almost make this something similar to <laughs> Paul. I didn't mean to talk about basketball, but it's kind of <laughs> something very similar to what I think we're experiencing on several levels from different organizations around multiple sports. Specifically, you look at the New York Knicks in basketball, you look at the Giants and the Jets in football, um, you look at the Miami Dolphins. I, I think what you what you have is I think you have situations where there's a balance when you're being a head coach. And again, I'm not I can't speak from any experience and nor would I presume to understand it, you know, perfectly at the NFL level at all. I'm just speculating. But I think that from my experiences, you know, as a coach in general, sometimes you're 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 in a situation where you're balancing, you know, the the kind of health of the team over the health of the individual player. And what I mean by that is, is that these specifically in Miami, this was an opportunity, I think, in Flores and Brian Flores saw this. I think this is an opportunity this year to raise the floor, so to speak of the Miami Dolphins, right? In terms of expectations, in terms of what they are capable of winning week in and week out, who they're capable of beating and what they're capable of achieving. And I think that he did not want to lose that opportunity for his organization or the culture that he's trying to develop. 
I really believe that Brian Flores, who's really kind of, I mean, you can argue he's hit every single, he struck every note perfectly this year, right? I mean, he's in the argument for coach of the year. Am I wrong? I mean, isn't he right there in that discussion? I mean, right. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, there hasn't been a note that he hasn't really struck perfectly. I'm going to trust Brian Flores' ability to talk to Tua and be like, Tua, this is not about you. This has nothing to do with our confidence in you. You're our quarterback of the future. We just happen to be in a situation where from an organizational level, from a team culture standpoint, for what we're trying to build, you know, we want to make the playoffs. That can help us moving into next year. It could help you. It could help us. It could help the team. I, I really do believe that Tua, knowing what I know about at least, you know, tangentially from watching things and reading articles about his background. I think Tua is all on board with this. I actually don't think he's soured by it at all. I I think Tua wants to compete. He wants to be out there. He wants to be the starter. But I genuinely think he understands the other side of this where raising the floor of the Dolphins is also an important aspect of this year as well. And getting into the playoffs and being competitive is going to be huge paying dividends moving forward. I think for everything it's worth, I think Tua is still the guy. I have no issues with what's going on. Uh, yes, I know they took him out. I don't think Tua is going to be soured by it. I really don't, guys. This is a guy who was in the Elite 11, and I remember this story very clearly. And in the Elite 11, he was told by coaches, you're not good enough. You're just not making the plays at the same level as these other quarterbacks are. That was happening in the preliminary rounds of the Elite 11. He came back the following year, and they argue to this day they don't know what happened to him, that he transformed himself in one offseason so significantly that people were amazed by where he is. And he took that ability and he rode it all the way to a national championship through Alabama into the NFL. I am not worried about this guy's work ethic or resiliency. If you can get him in a league, I'm willing to pay for him. I'd pay a second round pick for him. And I'm sure there are teams that will give me that for them. I'd pay for it. I really believe in him that much. I think he's the, he's the guy, the leader, the future of that organization I'm willing to I'm willing to stay in the game with him. Yeah, I mean, I think in a non-super flex league, you definitely could get him for a second round pick. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Hands down. Flex, I think that's paying quarterback for league. Uh, I think I think whoever the owner is probably sells him for a second round pick in the you know non-super flex, non-two quarterback mm-hmm. league. So if we take this to the running backs, not a lot to talk about right here. But I did want to. We met, we talked about J.K. Dobbins a little bit last time, so I don't want to bring him up again. Jonathan Taylor this past week, 74 yards and two touchdowns. Uh, DeAndre Swift, you know, obviously a bunch of the top running backs are hurt. James Robinson missed this week. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire missed this week. Uh, you know, so we were missing a couple of the top guys. Cam Akers missed this week. But the guy who did return this week who I want to talk about real quick is Antonio Gibson. 10 carries, 61 yards, three catches, eight yards. I think this guy is going to be a guy that I'm going to want to try to get on every one of my dynasty teams if I can get him this offseason because I think he he's just scratching the surface. They did, J.D. McKissick is not going to hold him back forever in terms of his receiving capabilities. Gibson has shown so much more as a runner than I ever anticipated. We thought he was going to be kind of like we named it, and I think it was us slash Bucky Brooks, you know, the wing back, the slot back. We thought Antonio Gibson was going to live in that world. We thought he was going to be LaVisca Chanel, Devin Duvernay. We thought he was going to be used DJ, uh, like Debo Samuel. 
We didn't envision him turning into a full-fledged running back. That's what he's became, and he looks good. He runs with power. He runs with speed. He runs with cutting ability. And then you combine the fact that of how ridiculous he is in the open field and his game-breaking ability and his receiving background. I think he's going to be a guy that when the Washington – kind of settles their offense and you know and they continue to fix that offense i want stock antonio gibson because i think he's gonna be ready to explode when that happens uh any any thoughts man on antonio gibson in terms of the surprise maybe in terms of how they ended up using him this year and outlook going forward yeah, I think he's 100% still developing as a player, and the fact that he's made precipitous gains from beginning of the season to the end of the season is absolutely the hallmark of a, of the development that you want to see from a player, especially in their rookie year. I think that the development he's made in terms of the caliber of plays he's making on the field from the types of opportunities that he's taking advantage of on interior runs versus what he's now doing on outside runs, what he's doing as a catcher of the football um, – yeah, I mean, I, I, I think a hundred percent he would be a guy that I'm going after on every fantasy team that I can get him on. I still think you're going to have to pay for him though, and it's going to cost you. Um, but I think that the investment is what we're seeing now with the returns of players like, I mean, Alvin Kamara, right? Alvin Kamara is the type of player that is not slowing down. He's too versatile. He's going to be a part of an offense. He's going to be effective. I mean, yes, he he set a, a you know a fantasy football record of sorts right this past weekend. Um, but you want to get players like Alvin Kamara, the Christian McCaffrey's. You want those types of players on your dynasty teams because they can form the backbone of a team of a of a positional group for you that will be very good for a long time. Yes, their opportunities will diminish over time, but they'll always be effective. So for Alvin Kamara's and the Christian McCaffrey's, you have like five, six years of RB1 numbers, and then maybe they go to an RB2 for two more years. You know what I mean? That's the thing. They don't drop off the face of the planet. You know, they have skill sets that are versatile and dynamic and can be effective in a lot of ways. Antonio Gibson has that skill set. And, I was never a believer that this would necessarily translate because we weren't sure where he was going to play. But now that he's picked his position or they've picked his position um, and the types of gains that he's made this year, the type of development that he's shown, go get him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, One note on wide receivers. I was probably in the minority in terms of how much I like T Higgins. There was a lot of people that were knocking T Higgins last year concerned about things and you know this past week six catches 99 yards uh and another touchdown i was intrigued with him from the minute that cincinnati had a lot of options at their disposal to start that second round and they they targeted t higgins to pair with joe burrow and ever since that pairing was formed i said man i want stock in him i didn't even think he was going to be fantasy viable this year and i still wanted stock in him and he's if it wasn't for Justin Jefferson putting up a one of the all-time great rookie seasons, the T Higgins season would be getting a ton, ton more, you know, notoriety and publicity on just how good he's been. And this was he's him starting out like, you know, behind AJ Green, behind Tyler Boyd, you know, when the year first started, probably on the depth chart behind John Ross. Like, and he just has systematically moved his way to the top of that. And and again, let's not 
put a broad stroke on everybody who's bigger, who's not a great separator, that they're all the same. They're not all Laquan Treadwell. They're not all, you know, pick another name, you know, Jaleel Scott, Jaleel Scott from a couple years ago. They're not all, they're not, don't pigeonhole every single player who wins at the catch point to think they can't make it at the NFL. Listen, the NFL has moved to more of a route running, separation quickness, big playability. But that doesn't mean there's not room for the Allen Robinsons, the Kenny Galladay type players. And that's who I said T. Higgins could be like. And he, you know, the good Alshon Jeffrey, that's exactly what T. Higgins has shown he can be. There are still players that can do that. The hard part is sometimes in in the collegiate game, you see some guys doing it because it's level of competition. T. Higgins, that was we saw him perform for years in big moments, big spots against top-level defensive backs. I didn't have concerns that he was going to be able to translate. So, so we got to be careful with always pigeonholing players that we think they're just going to be similar to another guy who didn't wasn't a great route runner, wasn't great separation quickness. Some guys, their calling card is at the catch point. T. Higgins is a special player at the catch point, and he's shown it off in year one already. He's almost uncoverable at the catch point. He's using that size, that frame, the length, the catch radius, his use of his body, the nuances that he uses at the catch point, and it's it's translated immediately. I'm right there with you. I think I was – I mean, you had him – I think I had number four or five I had him at. Listen, it's been like that for a while with him. He is a player, and to your point, Paul – it's what we say always on on this show, and we've said it from the minute we started talking about movement science and skill acquisition. Evaluate the quality of the solution to the moment. Don't evaluate the player. Evaluate the quality of that solution in that moment. Did they get the job done? How did they get the job done? How did their solution fit the overall situation that was being applied? Look outside of the player and focus on the problem and their ability to meet the constraints of that problem and solve that problem with their unique and authentic fingerprint or skill set. T. Higgins is an authentically different player than everybody you mentioned, Paul. Just because there are some sweepings, this is why I said to you earlier in the show, please stop telling me that Javante Williams can't be compared to Najee Harris because he's not 6'2", 230 pounds. That is inconsequential in my opinion. It has nothing to do with one or the other. It's the quality of their solutions, the way in which they perceive and and authentically interact with the information and the constraints on the field to give their own unique type of spin on the situation at hand. That's what makes players interesting to watch. That's what makes them fun to evaluate. And again, we don't have anything down. It's not like we have all the answers, but it's just a different way to consider players. And it may be something that allows us to open our minds to players as they transition from one level to the next in a different way. T. Higgins showed from day one that he had a transferable skill set because of the way in which he solved problems uniquely and differently than other players in the league. That was it. And now he got paired with a good quarterback and you know we're off to the races. And you know who I'm going to put in here, Paul? You know who I think the next T. Higgins is? I'm going to, I'm going to throw Seth this out Williams? here. For, what? Seth Williams? Seth Williams, very interesting. But I'm going to talk more towards the quality of their play being not one that we're giving as much credit to that could emerge more. 
I'm going to still go with Terrence Marshall. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. You know, one where it's like we we watch him and we're like almost bored that it's boring to watch. Like, okay, he made a catch. Sure, he made a catch. You know, it's a, of course he did. I think Terrace Marshall could be that type of T. Higgins meteoric rise where people are going to have him all over the place, but yet he probably should be in the top four or five. And yet people are going to have him probably in the top nine. You know, they'll have him in the ninth place, probably nine, ten. And we're going to we're going to look back and say, man. He's going to go to a team like, you know, he'll go to a team like the Browns and immediately, you know, eventually start because they're going to have some, you know, fallout with OD, you know, Odell Beckham and like Odell will move on and all of a sudden we'll see. Yeah. And last thing to round it out. No, no discussion right now because we've talked about these guys a lot, but putting you on the spot, Dynasty League rank the order rank. I'm going to give you five names. Rank the the top three that you would target from this list of five wide receiver names. You ready? Yep. Jerry Judy, Brian Edwards, Henry Ruggs, Jalen Rager, Denzel Mims. They have all dramatically disappointed for a variety of reasons this year. All uber talented, all top 100 picks, all top two round dynasty rookie picks last year. We've had a lot of great wide receivers this year. These five have kind of either been flat out useless or disappointed in spurts. But going into this offseason, give me the top three targets that you would target from that group of five that I just listed out for you. I'll put them into, I'll put them very quickly. Bargain basement price, worth the price because it's going to cost you very little. Go get yourself Braylon Edwards. Okay, go and get yourself Brian Edwards. I, I think Brian Edwards is the guy I'm going after right Braylon now. Braylon Edwards, once upon a time, would have been a great addition. Yeah, well, that would have been a great pick, like, once upon a time. Yeah, great. I would have stick with Brian over Braylon right now, though. But um, Brian Edwards would be my number one bargain basement price. I think he'll, he'll cost you nothing, and I think he, people will be happy to part with him for a future pick. Go get him. I think it's a matter of time before he rises. Every time he's on the field, he does something good. Every time he's on the field, he does something good. He's open too a lot. So I like Brian Edwards. Next guy I'm going to say is probably going to cost you some money, but I think he's worth it. Go get yourself Jerry Judy if you can afford it. You know, if somebody's willing to pay, if somebody's saying, I'll give you Jerry Judy for a second, a late second or an early third round pick, to me, I think it's absolutely somebody I'd go and get. I think the drops, the concerns, Listen, not everything is a flawless transition from one level to the next. And I know that there are many out there that say, how can you tout a player that didn't have a flawless transition, right? I mean, he was so good. What happened? I still think he's very good. I just think that also the situation, the ecosystem that is Denver is very much in flux and uncertain. They didn't have a quarterback for most of the year. They were, they couldn't even, they played an entire game without a quarterback, do we all forget that? Like, I mean, like that happened. There was no quarterback on the roster, right? So, I mean, like that happened this year. Don't judge a lot of these players solely on this year. I think some of these rookies, they had no off season, no type of mini camps. You got to give it time. And then the last one I would target is Jalen Rager. I still believe Jalen Rager was never meant to be, you know, a guy that was going to be perfect. I think we knew coming in that he had work to do to round out his overall game. But there was an opportunity given the situation in 
Philadelphia for him to potentially emerge as the go-to wide receiver. Since then, they've changed quarterbacks. So, I mean, the situation, I think, with Judy and Rager are as much the culprit in their lack of production as it is the player or their perceived talent. I think the perceived talent and the player is still somebody I'm investing in. But you got to give those teams an offseason and those players an offseason to find chemistry and synergy with whomever they're going to be playing with at the quarterback position. I don't think you can automatically just say, oh, well, those guys just tanked. Time to move on. Sell them for a song. If they're if people are going to do that, I think you go and buy them. Like you know, I, I would go and get. I'm telling you, Edwards, Rager, and Judy. Those would be my focus. I, I I thought a little bit about Mims as well. By the way, yeah, absolutely. I'll just say my ranking in order would be Judy one, Rager two, Henry Rugg three. That would still be. Oh, I, didn't, I, I had to put him in order. That's right. So I would, in order, I would go with the same order. But I think that Edwards would be the guy, though, that I would immediately try to go and get. If Edwards, you, Edwards, Edwards easily is the most attainable for the least, obtainable. Yes, for the least draft capital in terms of future picks. So I understand that. So you're right in terms of bottom basement, most attainable for the least amount of the upside of on him could be tremendous. Would be him. But in terms of the order in which I'd want. I still yeah. believe Judy is uber talented. I don't Hands think down. drops is something that is going to be an issue. Uh, Rager, I'm still w- I'm willing to give this year kind of being a lost year with that Philadelphia offense, and then the court and the quarterback change and Rager uh, injured and no off season and, and and training camp and and stuff like that. And then Henry Ruggs, man, you can't teach ta- you can't teach speed. He's another guy that battled an injury. I'm not ready to give up on him yet. John Gruden is a smart offensive mind. Look what he's gotten out of Nelson Aguilar this year as a reclamation project. Last year it was Darren Waller. I think he's going to find a way when he has a whole off season to utilize and take advantage of that skill set that is Henry Ruggs. So that would be the order all intriguing guys that I would all I'd be intrigued to buy any of those five names that I just mentioned for sure. So there it is guys, the week 16 NFL rookie report. Hopefully you enjoyed this show. We'd love to hear some feedback in terms of whether or not you enjoyed this deep dive on just, you know, really mostly Zach Wilson and then sprinkled in a couple other things because it's definitely something that if you guys enjoyed, you know, something we could kind of keep in in our back of pocket a little bit to maybe utilize from time to time during the season so we don't just talk about the same names every single week. It's something that we could potentially do in the off season. You know, even in the pre-draft months, we're not having on guests or we're not doing our tiered shows. We could think about, you know, doing a deep dive on just two or three guys that are maybe most hot topic names right now in, in, in generating pre-draft buzz or something like that. So we'd love to hear whether you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts or most probably uh, or on in terms of Twitter. We would love to hear some feedback if you enjoyed this episode where we did do that, this deep dive on Zach Wilson and then touch upon a couple of other guys. Matt, any final parting shots here before we, we wrap it up? No, I, I want to really echo the sentiment that you just shared. It was one of the biggest things that I've been sitting on the whole time was to say that, yes, please share with us if you enjoyed this type of deep dive on a couple of players, if this is something that you really enjoyed because – we saw on um, you know, on the social media feeds on Twitter that we got some interactions just off the fact that we were going to be talking about a couple of guys. And I thought that was very interesting because sometimes, you know, we cover so many names here because we, we kind of 
think about it as if we can give you a lot, we know that everybody's time is valuable. We don't want to kind of only focus on one player. But as we get into these kind of later months and in terms of the you know the time that we're in in the season, if this is what you guys enjoy and this is what you want to hear, yeah, please, please let us know. We'll be putting out some feelers through the um, – Saturday to Sunday football handle. So please subscribe and please make sure you download all these podcasts, but also make sure you follow our Saturday to Sunday football handle on Twitter. We'll, we'll kind of send out some feelers if people are interested in this type of talk and get some feedback. So thank you. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. So on behalf of Matt, on behalf of our sound tech engineer, David Nakano, as Matt said earlier, please have a happy and safe new year to you and your family. And we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday.